Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing in the series, The Life of Faith. We're almost to the end. In fact, we end next week. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Rahab. And of course, our artist has done an incredible job capturing Rahab here, and there she is on the walls of Jericho, and you can see just as the Bible describes in Joshua 6 that the walls fell down on top of itself behind her there, and the smoke rising up because the city was burned, and archaeology confirms that the walls fell down just as Joshua 6 said it did, that the wall fell on top of each other. Archaeology has confirmed that the city was burnt just as Joshua 6 says it was, but archaeology has also confirmed that there was one section of the wall, the northern portion, that never fell. The Bible tells us why that is, because Rahab lived in the city walls, the Bible says, and her house was spared because of her faith. And so there she is, triumphant in faith, with a scarlet cord representing the salvation by Jesus Christ through his blood on the cross, hanging out the window, waiting for the Israelites to come and rescue her. And the artist has done a great job, hasn't he? So let's, yeah, praise the Lord. So let's look now in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read just verses 30 and 31. We'll pray for the Lord's blessing and we'll study. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this morning you are moving and stirring in our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the great lessons you've been teaching us through this series, A Life of Faith. And Lord, I'm even just stoked to know things like we have archaeological evidence supporting the validity of the scriptures. Scriptures that were written thousands of years ago and thousands of years later, archaeology says, yep, that's what happened. Lord, we rejoice in things like that, but we don't rely upon things like that. We believe this is your word because you've said it is your word and we've experienced it to be powerful, living and active and transformative in our lives. And so many of us here have been delivered from so many things. We thank you that you are God who delivers and saves and renews and brings new life and sets right and restores. And we believe these things. And Lord, anywhere in our lives where we don't believe, we praise the disciples, pray that you would help our unbelief that you would increase our faith, that we would be men and women who are living vibrant lives of faith for your glory. Jesus, we want to live for your glory. We want to be on your mission. We want to be involved in your purposes. We want to transcend selfishness ourselves in the drama of this world to be more than conquerors walking in the victory of your cross and your grace and your mercy and looking for your soon coming. So make us such people. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our hearts. We invite you to mess with us this morning. Deal with the issues of our lives. Do a good thing. I ask that every word that I say would glorify you and be profitable for the furtherance of your kingdom by grace. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen the drama unfolding here in Hebrews chapter 11. We have faith worshiping with Abel. Faith walking with Enoch, faith working with Noah, faith willing with Abraham, faith waiting with Sarah, faith well tried with Abraham once again, faith winning with Moses, and in Rahab we see faith that is welcoming. 
Faith that is welcoming the purposes of God. Notice it says in verse 31 that by faith she welcomed the spies. Faith that is welcoming the purposes of God. Here's what's going on with Rahab in a nutshell. She recognized that God was doing something and something extraordinary in her lifetime and in her locale. Note that. She recognized, she realized, she laid hold of by faith that God was doing something wonderful in her time and in her locale. And she believed, that is she had faith, that God was true and right and good in his purposes. Therefore, she welcomed God's purposes in her life by faith. This is astounding. And this really needs to be by faith. And that's why she's in the hall of faith. This is astounding as evidenced by the fact that very few Christians actually do this. Let's not pull any punches. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Very few Christians actually welcome the purposes of God in their life. Very few Christians welcome the mission of God in their life. Now, this is evident in several ways, and we'll just mention a couple. It's evident if you just look around the local church, just the local church and who's serving. And in almost any local church, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And that's certainly true in this church. The vast majority of you are pew potatoes. The vast majority of you come and you just sit in the seats and you maybe sprout a little something, but that's what you do. And and you're a member of the community, but you've never necessarily become a contributing member of the community. You're like a baby. You're like a sucker fish. You're sucking. You're feeding on the milk. You're taking, but you haven't crossed the threshold of giving. That's evident in the local church, that's evident in most churches, and that's evident in this church. 10% of the people doing at least 90% of the work. Let's go from a microcosm sort of perspective to a macro perspective. You can tell this is true that very few Christians welcome the purposes and the mission of God in their life by how many Christians are involved in ministry on a world scale, on a world scale. There are about 2 billion 149,761,000 Christians in the world. About 2.2 billion Christians in the world. The number that are involved in ministry, both clergy and lay people, the number that are involved in ministry is about 11,982,000, about 12 million. That means, if you do the math, that worldwide, 99.45% of Christians are not doing ministry. About 0.55% are. But on a world scale, over 99% of all Christians are not engaged in ministry or mission. And yet, the Bible clearly teaches that every member is a minister. 
It's called the doctrine of the priesthood of the saints from 1 Peter chapter 2. That every Christian is called. That every Christian is anointed. Every Christian is gifted, 1 Peter 4.10 says. Every Christian is called to be on mission for the purposes of God. To see that men and women around the world would hear the good news that God loves them. And that Jesus Christ is the only unique savior of the world. And he's the one that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead saves us from sin and its penalties, sin and its bondage, death, the consequences of sin, and the devil, one of the agents of sin. That Jesus Christ saves and transforms and renews and delivers us to heaven when we leave this earth. The vast majority of Christians are not in any way engaged in that mission going forth. And yet it is explicit and foundational that every Christian is gifted and called in some capacity. But so many miss the mission of God in their lives. But you see, in Rahab's time, in the few decades that encompass the book of Joshua, God was up to something extraordinary. And we're going to look at that in a moment. In the few decades that encompassed Joshua, God was up to something stupendous. Now, in our times, God has also been up to something extraordinary. In just the last few decades, do you realize that more people have been reached with the gospel in the last 50 years than in the previous 1900 years? God is up to something extraordinary. And yet there are still, depending on how you define a people group, there are still three to 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. There is good news. There's reason to be optimistic with regards to the great commission and the mission of God, but there's still a lot of work to be done. But God is up to something extraordinary. Did you know that evangelical Christianity is currently the fastest growing religious movement in the world? Did you know that the growth rate of evangelical Christianity doubles that of Islam in the world? More good news, the growth rate of evangelical Christianity is triple that of the population growth. So there's some good news. On many fronts, we see that the gospel is going forth powerfully. And yet, about 27% of the world's 6 billion people or more are still unreached with the message. Did you know that in the last 15 years, there's been about a million churches planted? A million churches, that's great news. God is doing something spectacular in our time, but we need millions more. God is on the move and accomplishing his purposes in this world. And this world involves your world. And the question that every sincere, authentic Christian must ask him or herself is, am I welcoming God's purposes? Am I welcoming God's mission? Am I involved by faith in what God is doing? Do I really have faith that believes certain things about the character of God, the person of Christ, and the mission of God that causes me to rethink my life? That's what it means to have faith that transforms, to have trust that changes, that we believe certain things about the person and the character and the work of God that causes us to rethink our priorities, our finances, 
Our sexuality, our relationships, our grudges, our recreation, all of these things are to be rethought in light of the mission of God and the calling on your life. And Rahab caught that. She was involved. She welcomed God's purposes. Now, there's a little backstory we need to understand. First of all, we have the exodus out of Egypt. And we talked about it a little bit last week that Israel was in slavery to Egypt. There, their backs were beaten and their children were murdered. And they cried out to God and God heard their cry and God raised up Moses. And then God himself delivered them with an outreach arm and a strong right hand. God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, and then he brought them to a place on the southern portion of Canaan, the promised land called Kadesh Barnea. And that was the entry point. They were to enter into the promises of God and the rest of God at that point. But remember, they failed to do so because of lack of faith, a lack of belief. They didn't trust. They saw the circumstances. They saw the giants. They saw the walled cities. They saw the difficulties. And they allowed the drama to be bigger than their God in their mind. God's always bigger than our drama, my brothers and sisters. God is always bigger than our drama, but we can lose perspective from time to time, can't we? And things could seem so big and intimidating that we lose that trust and they lost that trust. And they said, no, we, we, we don't think God's going to pull it off. We don't want to enter in. Now, because of that unbelief, they were judged. God always blesses belief. God judges unbelief. Because they didn't trust, they didn't believe, though they had every reason on earth to do so. We have the wandering in the wilderness and they wandered for 40 years and God was good and God was merciful. But that unbelieving generation died out, including Moses. And then a new leader rises to the forefront of Israel and his name was Joshua. And Joshua comes on the scene and now is the time when the children of Israel are going to be brought into the blessings and the promises and the fruitful place of God, the land of Canaan that he reserved for them. And 500 years of prophetic history is pushing at the back of Israel and their new young leader, Joshua. And there they are camped out at the Jordan River for three days just to see how wide it was, how swiftly it flowed, and how difficult difficult it would be to get a million and a half people across if God didn't do something. What did God do? He stopped up the river a mile upstream and the river stood up in a heap and they walked through on dry land. And now they're experiencing the promises of God by the power of God, a powerful vignette or picture or type of the Christian, of life, the Christian life. Excuse me. By faith, they entered in to the good place God wanted them to be. But there were going to be some obstacles that they would have to overcome by faith, namely Jericho the walled city. And God gave him weird instructions. I mean, let's face it, God can be weird. His ways are not our ways. And he told him to march around the city seven times, all those days in a row. And then not to say anything at all. And then at a certain time, there would be the shout and the trumpet and the walls would come falling down. And it happened just as God said it would happen. But here's what I want you to grasp from that whole story is this. God was very clearly on the move at this time. He was on the move for his own purposes, for his glory, and for the benefit of his people. God's purposes and mission were going forward. And what is God's mission? 
God's mission is to be glorified among all the nations and to bless all the nations. That is God's mission in a nutshell. To be glorified among every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's why when we see a snapshot of heaven in Revelation 7, it's every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lamb of God. And to bless every nation is included in the purpose and the mission of God. But here in the unfolding of the story of Israel, he would accomplish his purpose by first revealing himself to and then through a nation. That is the nation of Israel. He would bless all the nations of the whole world by revealing himself to and then through a particular nation. And in the book of Joshua, which we'll go to in a moment, what we have is God asserting himself over and against the pagan beliefs, gods, and practices of the region which were holding people in bondage. I mean, these people were really in bondage. And God, because he's a deliverer, because he's a lover, because he wants to set people free from the bondage of the enemy and the bondage of the flesh, is asserting himself in the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua over and against these false gods. And listen, here's what I believe. I believe that God is asserting himself in our community right now. I believe that in a fresh way, in a profound way, God is asserting himself on the coastlands right now. That God is doing a new work, that he's doing a good thing for his own glory, and that he's asserting himself over and against the traditional strongholds of the area. And I believe that God is getting the victory. You might remember a few weeks ago, I can't remember which lesson it was, but we were talking about the fact that... um, a palm reader was opening up on Linden Avenue right over here, remember? And we talked about it and we saw the little space and it came open and then it said, coming soon, da-da-da-da, and I won't say her name, but she was coming, a palm reader, you know, and a tarot card reader, and these things are not of the Lord. These things are of the enemy. And I remember we talked about that day. We said, listen, people, we need to pray and say not in our community. We don't want deception in our community. We want the truth to go forth. We don't want darkness that brings bondage. We want the light that brings freedom. And I believe that God is on the move because now when I drive down Linden Avenue, her name and the sign is erased and it says space available. And that's nothing against the lady. I've prayed and I continue to pray for her salvation. But it's the spiritual reality behind those things. God didn't hate the Canaanites. God hated the demonic false gods that kept them in bondage. And so he's asserting himself over and against them. His purpose is moving forward. But here's the thing about God's purpose and God's mission. Throughout history... God has chosen in his wisdom to work through people rather than independent of people. Hasn't he? Read your Bible. Throughout history, God has chosen to work through people rather than independent of people. And in some cases, it even appears that God will or will not do certain things depending on human participation. For example, in Ezekiel 22, Israel was in trouble with God again. They were disobeying. They were going to be chastened by God. They were going to be judged by God. And God was right and just in his judgment. But what did God do? He looked for someone who would intercede first. He looked for someone who would intercede like Moses did in Exodus 32. And it says in Ezekiel 22:30. 30, 
God speaking, I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found none. Because in Exodus 32, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, Israel began to uh, fornicate around this false god that they made for themselves, this golden calf. And God says, hey, Moses, get down the mountain, man. Your people are going nutso. And Moses comes down the mountain. He sees what's going on. He throws the tablets and they break on the ground. Oh, hey, what are you guys doing? And do you remember what happens? God says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to wipe them out. And God would have been totally justified in his judgment against them. But what did Moses do? Moses simply said, hey, Lord, I ask that you would have mercy on them, not because they deserve it, but for your great name, have mercy on them. And God relented from that undesired course of judgment and had mercy on an entire generation and a nation because one man asked. And yet in Ezekiel 22, God is looking for someone to do the same. And there was nobody to intercede for them, nobody to plead for mercy. So what we see from scripture is not only that God chooses to work through people rather than independent of people, but there are certain things that God will or will not do dependent on human participation. This does not negate the sovereignty of God. It is rather an expression of the sovereignty of God that in his sovereignty, he has so chosen to involve humanity. I wouldn't have done it. I would have just been, you know, big, mean, gnarly God. Just, but God in his mercy has chosen to choose people. And so because of that now, here's what we see throughout history and at this moment in this place. We see God looking for men and women that are willing to be used for his purposes. God went looking and God found Abraham. Before that, God was looking and God found Noah. God went looking and God found Moses. Christ went looking and he found Peter. Again, he was looking and he found Paul. God was looking and God found Rahab. God is looking, and the question is, will he find you? Will you be found by God in a state of faith which is welcoming the purposes of God for the glory of God, which are bigger than your own life? Rahab was found in that state of faith. What made Rahab suitable and ready for God's purposes? What makes us suitable and ready for God's purposes? Let's find the answer in Joshua 2. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, we don't have time today to get, to get the whole story of Jericho and all that. We talked about it when we taught through the book of Joshua. You can go back and get that. It's worth getting that story, but we're just reading in the Bible. We're just going to look at a few verses here. What made Rahab ready and suitable for God's purposes? Verse 1 of Joshua 2 says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Stop right there. First thing that we see, and we already got this from Hebrews chapter 11, was that Rahab was a prostitute. 
So then, was it her moral character that made her ready and suitable for God's purposes? No. It wasn't an issue of her moral character. Though scripture teaches us that God is concerned about moral character. But that wasn't the issue here. Rahab was a prostitute. Look now, start reading in verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. And the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, what we see here very clearly is that Rahab lied. What we see in just seven verses is that Rahab was a lying prostitute. So, was it her ministry methodology that made her ready and suitable for God's purposes? I mean, what was her ministry methodology? Lying? Was it her moral character that made her suitable? No. Was it her ministry methodology that made her suitable? No. But the Bible teaches that God is concerned about moral character and he has something to say about our method of ministry. But it wasn't either of those things. So why was this woman chosen from the population of an entire city-state to be powerfully used in God's purposes? Verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on all of us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you because we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab believed God. She had faith. She was a lying prostitute. She didn't quite have morals altogether yet. She didn't have the right approach to ministry all down yet. Should she have been a prostitute? No. Should she have lied? Probably not. But remember, she didn't know the word of God. She hadn't been instructed from the truth of God that came from Mount Sinai. And remember the culture that she came from. This Canaanite culture was famous for, among other things, placing live babies in jars and then building them into the foundations of buildings as foundation sacrifices. And there in that jar, they would suffocate and die and bake and remain. This is a culture from which she came. So it probably wasn't real abnormal to be a prostitute and lying to save the spies. Probably not a real big deal with regards to her conscience. I'm not saying that sin is right. I'm saying cut her a break, you Pharisee. God did. She was a lying prostitute. 
But she believed God. And she came to fear God, to revere God. Rahab had faith. Look how profound her statements of faith were in verse 9. I know the Lord has given you the land. In verse 11, the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She recognized Him over and against all the false gods and the pagan gods of the Canaanite culture. She said, this is the one true God. And from where did this faith come? This faith came from what she heard. Verse 10, for we have heard. And again, verse 11, and we heard. And what does Romans ten seventeen say to you and I? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. How is faith increased by the word of God? When we read it, when we consume it, when we study it, when we listen to it, faith is increased. Faith is developed the same way in our lives as it was in the life of Rahab. She heard these things about God. She believed and it yielded in her a faith which recognized who he was and submitted to his purposes. I want to press upon you a little further how profound this was because the whole city had heard the same thing. Notice that she said, we have heard what God did and who he is. And yet it appears from the account that Rahab was the only one in the city that believed. They had all heard the same thing, but not all believed or had faith. And that's true today of Christians and non-Christians. Two Christians could hear the same message, read the same passage, and one could respond in faith and experience a transformed life, and the other one, eh. Two non-Christians could hear the exact same message that they were created by God and that they are currently at this moment loved by God, but they're separated from God by their sins. But that's unacceptable to God because of his love. And so he draped himself in humanity, came to earth, lived a perfect life because we couldn't, died on the cross so that we won it and rose from the dead to give brand new life that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Two non-Christians could hear the same message and one of them says, I believe it and their life is radically transformed. They receive it, they're forgiven, they're made brand new and everything is different and the other person who heard the same message says, eh, good for you. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know. If you're a Calvinist, you have one answer. I don't agree with you. If you're an Arminianist, you have another answer. I don't agree with you either. I agree with what the Bible says. That God is revealed, that God pursues, that God woos, that God draws by his Holy Spirit, and that we need to receive that. Some people do and some people don't. And that's what was going on in Rahab's culture. Everyone heard the same message, but only Rahab believed. What is surprising to me, though I don't understand it, is who does often believe. Now, Jesus, in the gospel accounts, was dealing with the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish faith there, with the religious leaders, the people that should have been in the know, the people that should have had the greatest faith. He was dealing with them, and he said to them in Matthew 21, 32, or 31 through 32, truly I say to you that the tax collectors, and you've got to read that in context. They were the traitors in society. They were the extortionists, right? They were the outcasts then. 
Not like the IRS today. Truly I say, kind of. Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Who is he talking to? The religious people. For John came to you, speaking of John the Baptist, in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. They believe the message. The religious people, it was lost on them for one reason or another. We could wax on for days why that was. But the people who knew they were in need, the people that understood their brokenness, that understood their failure, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and me, and some of you, saw, wait a minute, I have a need. I'm not perfect. But there's a perfect God that made me. I'm accountable to him. I need to repent of the things I've done wrong and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his cross. And Jesus pointed to religious people and said, you guys are not getting into the kingdom of God before these prostitutes and these tax collectors. He said another time, it's not the righteous who needs a physician, but it's the sick. And he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And perhaps Rahab was just lost enough in that society that when she heard about that God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, it meant something to her. It resonated with her. When she heard about a God who was kind and merciful and powerful and not like these dumb idols that they would speak to all day long and never see do anything, and not like these false religions that kept them in bondage, Maybe she was just broken enough that when she heard that, she knew there was a need. Who knows what happened in Rahab's life? Everybody's got a story. I don't think prostitution was too unusual in that society. But who knows what happened? Who knows if she was abandoned by her dad? Forgotten by her mom? Raped along the way somewhere? Molested along the way somewhere? Who knows what degree of brokenness was in her life? I know who knows. You and me. We're just like her. We're broken. And so when we hear this story, this truth about a God who cares, a God who saves and delivers and restores, a God who would stop the forward momentum of 500 years of prophetic history, to call a prostitute into a brand new life and community. That means something to us because we see ourselves in Rahab. And in the midst of all that, whatever had gone on in her life, she had faith. And so she welcomed the purposes of God. What are the purposes of God in our life? to get this message that we've been speaking about out in what we say and what we do. And through that, for all the nations to be blessed and for all the nations to worship Jesus. And it happens in a macro sense in the world and it happens in a micro sense in our lives. And this is the paramount issue in life. that we are involved with God in the things of God because we've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, and our life is no longer our own. 
And you see, it's not only obligatory, it is wonderful. Because now we find ourselves living for a purpose that is larger than ourselves. And yet so many miss it. And so we've got to ask ourselves, why don't we welcome the purposes of God? It seems that over 99% of Christians don't. Why don't we? Well, probably first of all, it's inconvenient. It's almost always inconvenient to welcome the purposes of God. I mean, this whole thing with Rahab, it would literally rock her world. Literally. Literally, the walls that she lived in would be shaking all around her and the world that she knew would crumble and burn. Was it convenient? No. It wasn't convenient. It was very inconvenient. But it was the purpose of God. It would radically shake up her world. It would mean that things would never be the same again when those walls came down. And we see this is consistent oftentimes with God's calling on people. He called Peter, James, and John and said, hey boys, come and follow me. And they dropped their nets and they followed him. What nets? Nets that belonged to someone else? No, they were in a family fishing business. Those were their nets. They had to drop those things and leave them behind and follow Jesus. There was Matthew sitting at his little collection booth collecting taxes and Jesus said, hey Matthew, you, come on, follow me. Matthew had to leave that behind. Not only the pragmatism and the practicality of it, but the identity that came along with it. Was it convenient? Not in the slightest. Was it right? Best thing he ever did. So sometimes welcoming, welcoming God's purposes in our lives means that we need to be willing to be inconvenienced. And the problem is that we as Americans don't like that. I don't. Do you? Do you like to be inconvenienced? I hate to be inconvenienced. Don't inconvenience me. Don't trouble me. Don't bug me. I'm just like you. I want everything to go smooth and orderly and easily. That's who we are. Let's not lie. There's nobody that says, awesome, I'm so inconvenienced right now. This is great. Oh, bless the Lord. I'm just all jacked up right now. This is wonderful. No, we don't like to be inconvenienced. A recent study said that 70% of Americans say that having a comfortable lifestyle is very important to them. I'd say about 30% of them were lying. (laughs) More are becoming honest, though. That's up from 59% in 1991. It's a dramatic increase in a few years. 70% of Americans say that having a comfortable lifestyle is very important to them. Here's the problem. Only 56% of Americans say that making a difference in the world is important to them. Uh Uh-oh. That means America gets a big fat F. 56%, maybe an F plus on a curve. 70% say comfort is very important. Only 56%, I can't believe this, say that it's important for them to make a difference in the world. Are you telling me that half the people out there don't give a rip whether or not they make a difference in this world? Only 45% of Americans say that being active in church is very important to them. So what we have is a cultural value conflict in America. What we value most for ourselves is not necessarily that which God values most for us. Now I understand, I'm just like you. I want to be just as comfortable as you. I like inconvenience just as little as you do. But, but we have a real problem here. 
Because our values as Americans are not lined up with that God. And don't tell me that you think the numbers would be different if it was only within the church. The statistical difference between Christians and non-Christians is almost indistinguishable on every account in America. Go check it out. That's true for pornography and adultery and all sorts of sin. Almost indistinguishable, the church from the non-church. So the church has a real cultural conflict. We highly value something that God does not necessarily highly value for us. His mission is more important than our comfort or convenience. And our desire for comfort and convenience is greater than our desire for God's mission. So we don't welcome the purposes of God. The second reason we often don't welcome the purposes of God is because of the risk associated with it. And there is risk. I mean, if the king found out, the king would have killed her. That's what the king would have done with a lying prostitute. The king would have killed her. There was risk associated with welcoming the promises of God. Same with Moses. Moses was going to have to go and stand before Pharaoh and said, well, God said, let my people go. There was some real risk associated with that. And very few people are willing to risk anything for God in Christian culture today. We value our perceived security, which as we spoke about in previous messages, is only an illusion. We think of our perceived security as being more important than risking for God. Nobody wants to risk for God these days. Another reason we don't welcome the purposes of God is sin and particularly selfishness. Rahab's actions were not selfish. If she was concerned about herself, she would have exposed the spies and not gotten herself in trouble with the king. But in welcoming the purposes of God, we see that she displayed a selfless attitude. She was concerned about God's purposes and her family's well-being, if you read the rest of the story. Moses was the same way. We read last week about Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty five that he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God to, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You know who wasn't like this? Jonah. Jonah wasn't like this. Jonah had that sin of selfishness. Oh, the stinking Ninevites. You've got to be kidding me, God. Do you know what these guys are all about? Do you know what these guys are like? You really want me to go all the way over there to tell them this gig? No, I'm going on a boat trip. <laughs> Jonah is a picture of that selfishness, which seeks to override the purpose of God. And I'm so thankful that God sent a big fish to swallow him up. Sometimes God needs to do that in our lives. Sometimes we need to do that big fish experience. Because our selfishness outweighs our desire to see God's purposes accomplished. The next thing that often hinders us is misunderstanding. In other words, we're not fully convinced of God's goodness or wisdom. That is to say, many of us think that welcoming God's purposes and mission in our life will make us miserable. Many of us believe that. Otherwise, we would welcome his purposes and his mission. Otherwise, it wouldn't be 0.55% that does so. Most of us believe that if I really obey God, it's going to make me miserable. That's entirely uh, not true. Might make you poor. Might put you in danger. It might cost your life as there's 175,000 Christians who will be killed for their faith around the world this year. 
If you leave America, very well might cost you your life, but I'll tell you, you're not going to be miserable. Was Stephen miserable when they were stoning him and he opened up his eyes and he saw Jesus standing there at the right hand of God to welcome him into glory? Hey, dude, I don't think so. Were Paul and Silas miserable when they were in prison for their faith and Philippi when they were worshiping Jesus in the jail cell and even the jailer was converted? I don't think so. You see, I just think we don't trust God. I don't think we really believe that God could satisfy us in adversity. And so we inoculate ourselves against it because of misunderstanding. Another reason that we don't welcome the purposes of God is money. That is to say, we are seldom satisfied with how much we have, and we usually are not sure how to best use it. There's confusion as it comes to our finances in the kingdom of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000, and in testing Philip, he said, Philip, come here. Philip, you know, we, we, we should feed these people. What did Philip revert to? Immediately reverted to finances. There he is standing before Jesus. Hello. And immediately he goes, oh, mm, no, here's the deal, Jesus. I, I don't think that's going to work out financially. <laughs> he says in John chapter 6, 200 denarii is not enough to feed these guys. A denarii was a day's wage. So, you know, the better part of a year's income is not enough to feed these guys. Ah, I don't think it's going to work this time, Lord. Judas had a different problem. Mark chapter 14, Mary came to worship at the feet of Jesus. And she poured out an alabaster vial of perfume. The text tells us that it was 300 denarii worth. That is almost a full year's wages, about 11 months wages that she poured out in worship at the feet of Jesus. And, and uh, Judas goes, oh, wow. You know, Mary, we could have used that to feed the poor. And Jesus said, are you kidding me? That which this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her wherever the gospel goes forth into the ends of the earth. In other words, she had the right understanding of finances. He had the wrong understanding of finances. It's not that we don't want to feed the poor. It's just that we have our priorities when it comes to money so often out of whack. And this will keep us from accepting by faith the purposes of God in our life. One study says that only 39% of adults feel it's important to give money at church. 39% feel it's important. I could tell you that less than 10% actually do what they feel is important. Less than 10% in any church tithe. Less than 10% of you tithe at this church. So 39% of you think it's important, but about 30% or more feel like, yeah, it's important, but I don't actually literally need to do it. (laughs) The other reason that we often miss the purposes of God are our own agendas. Put very simply, we just want to do what we want to do. And we don't really want God to interfere with that. We've got plans, we've got hopes, we've got dreams, we've got stuff that we want to accomplish. You know, the church in Laodicea was like that. And in Revelation 3.20, it says that Jesus stood at the door and knocked and said, hey, if anybody hears me and opens up the door, I'll come in and intimately dine with him or her. In other words, Jesus was feeling on the outside of the church and was knocking. We often put Jesus on the outside of our hearts. Just have our own agendas. We want to do what we want to do. Lord, I'll let you in a little bit, but don't go in this room. 
Don't mess with that area. Don't touch. Listen, um, listen. You can have all of this, Lord. Just don't touch this. Not right here. You, you can have this. And we find ourselves in the unenviable position of Jesus knocking on the doors of our hearts saying, hey, if you'll let me in, I'll really come in and transform your life. But we miss that transformative work and the purpose of God and the mission of God because we just want to do what we want to do. Now, statistics say that 75% of evangelicals want to make a difference in the world. I'm biased, but I think that percentage is a lot higher in this room. I think the vast majority of you here want to make a difference in the world. You want to see the mission of God go forth. You want to see the great commission accomplished in this generation. You want to see the return of the Lord, but the good news of the gospel must be preached to all the nations first. And so it starts with faith. It starts with faith that is willing to open up and to welcome the purposes of God no matter what the cost. And then this thing is so doable. Think about this scenario. Here's the truth. If every Christian in the world led just one person to the Lord, just one person, and then discipled them for a year, because we're called to make disciples and not just converts, led just one, just one, one person, led one person to the Lord, discipled them for one year, and then at the end of that year, each of them led another person to the Lord, just one, and then they discipled them for a year, and then those people each led one person to the Lord. If you continue to do that, then within 25 years, there would be 33 million new Christians. And within 34 years, the whole world would be evangelized. Just one. It's not great faith. It's just a little bit of faith. It's just faith that says, okay, there's this guy and he sits next to me in the truck all day long and we drive around and we do our job. Lord, I'm scared, I'm nervous and there's some, some relational risk associated with this and some reputation stuff, but gosh, I need to tell him about your love. There's this kid at school and they're so messed up and they're so miserable and they're so going down the wrong road and Jesus, you found me and you changed me. Help me to communicate your love to them. Just one. But you see, what God is up to in our lifetime is way bigger. God is up to something big and he wants to use you for his purposes. Let me say this as we close. That Rahab's life, though she had all these liabilities, she was a prostitute. She was a woman in a society that did not have great esteem for women. She was a Canaanite and not an Israelite. Though she had all these liabilities, all these things working against her, and when it comes to the purposes of God, her life was radically transformed. Rahab emerges as one of only two women in the whole hall of faith. There's only two gals in there, Sarah and Rahab. She's also one of only two people that James used to exemplify faith in James 2. When he wanted to talk about authentic faith, he pointed to two people, Abraham and Rahab. It says about Rahab, and in the same way, 
Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as a body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It's not talking about becoming righteous by works. It's talking about displaying righteousness by works, showing that we have been made righteous. And secondly, thirdly, this is a mind blower. Rahab is one of only two non-Jews in the genealogy of Christ. If you were to look at Matthew chapter one, it says this starting in verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac and to Isaac Jacob and to Jacob Judah and his brothers and to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar and to Perez was born Hezron and to Hezron Ram and to Ram was born Aminadab and to Aminadab Nashon and to Nashon Salmon and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth and to Obed Jesse and to Jesse was born David the king. Rahab was a mother of Boaz, which made her the great, great grandmother of King David. And Jesus Christ comes into the world as the savior of the world and the lineage of David. How amazing is our God that he takes a lost, hurting, broken, ripped off little girl that the world would call a prostitute, reveals himself to her. By faith, she is delivered from destruction, brought into the community of faith, and she ends up one of the only two in the hall of faith, one of the only two in the chapter about faith, and she is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How incredible. Yeah, praise the Lord. I mean, this is what God does. You don't get more transformative than that. And it was only because she had a little bit of faith and welcomed the purposes of God. Said, yeah, God, I think you're God. And I think that what you're doing is right. It's going to shake up my world. It's going to mess up my gig. It's going to put me in a bit of danger. But come and do it in my life. I've been sharing with you a little bit in this series from my own life. How does it pertain to the family surfboard business? There was that time of waiting and wondering like Sarah and Abraham had. And then there was that time of surrender for Kate and I, my wife and I, where we had to put it on the altar Like Abraham put Isaac on the altar and we had to surrender it and give it up to God. And then there was that time of victory over the flesh like there was for Moses where we had to overcome the the lure and the enticement of the world and the promises that came along with that. And then there came a time of welcoming in our lives. The Lord brought us to this place before everything was clear. He brought us to this place, Kate and I, where we said, okay, Lord, We'll go anywhere and do anything you want us to do. We've been holding on to the surfboard thing so tightly, but we believe that you're right and that your purpose and your mission is bigger and that you're good. And so Lord, we'll go anywhere you want us to go and we'll do whatever you want us to do. There came a real moment where Kate and I prayed that together one night. And never in my wildest imaginations would I have thought that God would let me stay in my hometown, which I love more than any place in the whole world, and I've been around the world a few times, that God would let me stay here and serve him? 
that he'd let me preach the gospel here, that Kate and I would get to raise our kids here, that we get to be in the ministry and be with you guys in this place. It's beyond anything I ever would have thought to ask. And yet that's exactly what God did. And what he did for Rahab was infinitely greater than that. You see, don't buy the lie that he wants to wreck your life. Rather believe what Jesus said, that if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And if you think you're too far gone for God to use you, man, you ain't right. You need to read the Bible. Rahab was a prostitute. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was way too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses couldn't speak well. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Jesus. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman was divorced many times. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus was dead. In other words, people, you have no excuses. (laughs) Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we commit ourselves to these things. And yet we do so with trepidation, knowing that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. God's moving on your heart to accept his purposes, just stand where you are. We're going to stand and we're going to ask the Lord to fill us. Lord, those of us that are standing before you, we're doing so because we're realizing that to a greater degree, you're calling us to your purpose. And we want to be committed to your purpose. And so we stand in your presence and say, Lord, here am I, use me. Here we are, Lord, with all of our drama, with all of our brokenness. And yet you're bigger than those things. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, you renew and restore and forgive and transform. So here we are, submitting ourselves to your transformative process and asking the Holy Spirit, you would come upon us and fill us to accomplish the purposes of God. We want to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the outermost parts of the earth and right here in our own community. Lord, we want to live selfless lives. We want to impact the world for your glory. We want to see those around us blessed. We want to see the nations blessed. We want to see the captives set free. We want to see the the lame healed, Lord. We want to see the blind have their eyes open and the deaf begin to hear. We want to see these things. We know that you'll do these things through us for your glory. And so, Lord, here we are, asking for a fresh corporate filling of the power of the person of the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. Come, Lord, and move in us. Use our lives right where we are 
Thank you that we don't have to get on a boat or a plane, but when we go to work tomorrow, there we are for your purpose. Use us there, Lord. There's room on the carpets today. And the prayer team will be up here to your right if you need help. Let's press into the Lord and really let him refine our hearts. Let him build our faith that we could be on his mission.